Lord, take us through whatever you need to take us through as long as you remain with us. And that's the promise. You'll never leave, never depart, never forsake. You hold us. No one can snatch us. We can't jump out of the hand that holds us. The comfort and rest of the great work that you have done in salvation. This is your work and you never fail. And Lord, we need to grow. We desire to grow. We don't want to remain where we are. We want to move forward, upward and onward. Higher ground. We want to ascend the hill of the Lord. We want to behold the face of Christ and grow from one degree of glory to the next. We want to be transformed. We want to be conformed into your image and not this world. And you've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us gifts. You've given us one another. Help us now, Lord. Grow us. Change us. And where there are the lost among us, bring them in. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, as you may have guessed, the last message I did in Philemon was the last message of Philemon. And as I've asked several of you, and will ask you all as a church, to pray for me as I am seeking the Lord's face, regarding which book to preach next. Uh, And so this week and next week, we're going to be looking at um, some other things as I pray and seek the Lord's will regarding which book. So turn to Romans 2 and verse 24. Romans 2, verse 24. Romans 2.24 reads, as, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Your life has a great impact in this world. You impact people with what you do, what you say, What you don't do, what you don't say. There is no such thing as an unimportant decision. In fact, the Bible even says whether you eat or drink, it deals with the glory of God. Everything you do matters. Everything you say matters. We know this because Jesus said, every idle word will come into account on the day of judgment. There is nothing that is unimportant that you do. Even children, you may feel like, well, I'm small, that's for the adults. No, even you make decisions every day, all day, and every single one of them matters. Remember the little boy with a few loaves and little fish? His decision to give his lunch mattered. It was important. Uh, This is... Really heavy to think about that even your words, you know, Proverbs 12.18 says there is one whose words, rash words, are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 
you think about the simplicity of a word, it's, it's really just sounds put together that we've ascribed meaning to. And if you put those words together in a certain pattern, you could be pulling out swords and stabbing people, or you could be putting medicine on wounds and healing. Words. What we do affects people. We can encourage other believers to run faster, to love deeper, to suffer better, or we can discourage saints. Think of Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love in good works. That's based on what you do, how you speak, your behavior, your actions, your life matters. And there's not just what we do, but then there's the people. Think of the people in your life that you affect. Proverbs 10.1, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Are you a wise son? Are you a wise daughter? Or are you foolish? Your friends. Friends that you grew up with. You can impact them. Remember Rehoboam who was counseled foolishly by his friends. Paul, his friend Peter, had gotten off track and was doing things that were not in step with the gospel. And Paul, as a good and faithful friend, rebuked his friend to bring him out of hypocrisy. What you do matters as a parent. Think of David and how his daughter Tamar was raped by her brother and David failed to avenge her, to defend her, to help her, and how it turned his sons against him. Think of Abraham and Isaac, the life of Abraham, who lived a life of such faith and dependence on God. He had such a relationship with God that when it came time for his son to get a wife, his son had no objections to his father's course of helping him find one. He trusted his father. And we see it even in the way he laid down on the altar to be sacrificed. You affect your co-workers, the people that you work with. Think of Joseph, how he worked in Potiphar's house, unjustly put there, and yet worked so faithfully that everything was turned over to his hands. Same that happened in prison and in Pharaoh's house. You affect your spouse. Husbands, you're told to wash your wives with the water of the word to present to yourself one who is spotless without wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. And, and, and sisters, you are told that if you have a husband who's lost or just does not obey the word, your conduct can bring that man to repentance without a word. What, what am I saying? The, the, the point is, it's a lie to think what I do only hurts or affects me. It's just not true. What we do has massive implication on others. So is your life impacting people for good or evil? Are you making people better or worse for having known you? Here's the true meaning behind the controversial phrase, all lives matter. (laughs) 
Your life really does matter. That's important, but I found something more important. Something bigger and heavier and weightier than just how we impact one another, how we make each other feel, how we affect each other's lives. And that's what I want to deal with this morning and next week. Two categories of people. Our brother talked about two categories of people, the saved and the lost. And amen, that is true. But there's another two categories of people that are found in this world and that are found in this church. And you and I fit into one of them. Now, you may go in and out at times, but there is one that identifies who you really are, what your life actually is. Two groups from two verses. The first is what I already read this morning to you. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's one group. Your life causes the world to blaspheme God. The second group is from Matthew 5.16 in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I found it to be true that what you do, how you live, either brings blasphemy to the great name of our God, or it causes His name to be glorified. And every decision, every conversation, Everything you do is doing one of those two things. You're either causing blasphemy or causing His name to be glorified. So this morning we will deal with the question, and this is the name of the message, are you the cause of blasphemy? And Lord willing, next week we will deal with the question, is God glorified because of you? So, let's look at our text again, Romans 2, and we'll start with verse 21 to see why the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. We see that it is, but why? What were they doing that brought this about? You then... Who teach others? Well, there's a question right there. Do you teach others? Do you teach others about God? Do you teach others about salvation? Do you teach others about Christ? Do you teach others about eternity? Do you teach others? Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor or hate or despise idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What was the cause in this passage 
for God's name to be blasphemed. It is hypocrisy. Telling others don't steal, but stealing yourself causes blasphemy. Urging others to not commit adultery when you are an adulterer causes blasphemy. We've all been on the outside of Christ. We know what it is to have met someone who said they were a Christian and see them live a complete different life. And what did we conclude? What did we say? What was our therefore? Well, we didn't say, therefore, this person's not a real Christian. We said, therefore, Christianity is fake. Christians are hypocrites. This stuff isn't worth living for. We took the behavior of a hypocrite and ascribed it to God. It didn't make the gospel glorious. It didn't make the blood of Jesus precious. We didn't think regeneration was amazing. We thought Christianity was a joke. When the darkness of Ravi Zacharias was uncovered, the world responded. Many of you know this story. The most, arguably, the most famous uh, apologist, an apologist means one who defends the faith, who has an answer back for the objections that are made. One of the most famous apologists, Christian apologists worldwide was discovered to be not only a wolf, but a predator, sexual predator who abused and raped women for decades. Many people in the world had many things to say about that. The website The Friendly Atheist said it very well, what the Gentiles thought about what he did. Listen to this quote after going through the details of the scandal, this person said, when it comes down to it, perhaps the bigger story here is how a famous Christian apologist was able to get away with utter hypocrisy for many, many years. He told people to follow a specific conservative interpretation of God's word while refusing to do it himself. His actions were far worse than those non-Christians he thought needed to be saved. Christianity isn't a virtue. It never was. That's what the friendly atheist concluded. But did you notice the language, how it was similar to what we found in Romans 2.24? He told others to do this, but did not do it himself. And what was the conclusion? What was the therefore? Christianity isn't a virtue. It never was. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of hypocrisy. You see it? The Lord says, because you preach against sin and yet embrace it yourself, the heathens blaspheme the name of God. Are you guilty of hypocrisy? Examine your own life. Is there hypocrisy anywhere? Now, I don't simply mean the fact that you fail to live up to the standard of God's holiness that we all fail to measure up to. We all, at one time or another, proclaim the truth of God's word and yet fail 
to fulfill it. That is the battle of sanctification as we grow in holiness before Christ. But that's very different from pretending to be holy, pretending to be righteous, pretending to be godly, pretending to be a banana, and yet having no real fruit inside. Preaching against sin while secretly, privately treasuring it, enjoying it, loving it, practicing it, celebrating it while telling others, don't do this, but all the while inside you love and treasure and practice. That is hypocrisy. And this can come out in many ways. Tell your children to never yell, and yet you're a yeller. Spank them for not getting along with their siblings, and yet you seem to have conflict with everyone that you know. We've got to be careful about this. Uh, brothers, you who have people under your authority, and how do you speak about the authority in your own life? How do you talk about the governing authorities? Well, they're corrupt and they're this and they're that and they're that. And, well, maybe they are. But the Bible says to honor those in authority. And if the people under your authority see you talking like that to them and then they ex- you expect them to respectfully submit to you and honor you, beware of hypocrisy. And sisters, the same could be said of you if you demand that your children submit to your authority and yet you rebel against your husbands. You see, this can lead to blasphemy of our God when we walk in hypocrisy. The way you treat sin and His Word and the church and everything else impacts the way the world looks at God. Do you realize that to some degree, you and I are responsible for how the world sees God? In fact, that's what it meant to be created in the image of God. We were supposed to be little images of Him walking around so that people could say, that's how God acts. That's how God loves. That's how God talks. That's how God responds. That's how God is. And that's what makes sin so sinful is we bear the image of God and when we sin, we're saying God lies, God lusts, God murders, God is an idolater. That's what makes sin so sinful. It brings blasphemy to our God when we walk in such a way. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 2 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift, swift destruction. And look, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be what? Blasphemed. Beware of hypocrisy because it brings 
blasphemy to our God. But there are more ways than one for the Gentile to blaspheme the name of our God. Psalm 69, verse 6. Here's David, and hear the groans of this prayer. Hear the the bowel, gut-wrenching cries of this prayer, because I trust you have prayed the same thing. Verse 6, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Can you feel that? Do you ever pray that? This is a bit of a different situation. In Romans, we have the heathens blaspheming God's name because of hypocrisy. People who identified themselves with the Lord, but they were just doing whatever they wanted secretly. But here we have a believer earnestly praying to God not to be the cause of other believers being put to shame. Other people who bear the name of the Lord being dishonored, not because of their behavior, but because of His. Please don't let the believers be put to shame because of what I do. And in this church, there are genuine believers. You love the Lord. You strive day in and day out to walk faithfully. You say no to that and no to that and yes to this. You strive and sweat and blood, sweat and tears are being poured out. You are denying yourself. You are praying earnestly. You're faithfully studying the Word. You are with... with... There is one who swears even to his own hurt. And that's you. You keep your word even if it means you suffer greatly. You would rather be persecuted and you have been because you have been speaking up for the name of Christ. And if one of our number has some great fall, is he the only one that's going to be put to shame? What's going to happen? even though you've been walking faithfully, you're going to be lumped in with them. All those Grace Church Austin people are the same. All Christians are the same. Wait, you've been walking faithfully. You've been seeking to honor the Lord. You didn't do what was done, but because somebody over here was not careful to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, was not mindful, was being fast and loose with their life and not being serious about the Lord and His glory and the highway of holiness. They were not taking being a Christian seriously, but coasting and just relaxing rather than wrestling against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places with the armor of God. You get lumped in with the rest. 
I'm a pastor. And when there's a big fall of a pastor, what's said of all pastors? They're all the same. Do you see this? As a Christian who still sins, I know the, real, the danger is if someone catches me at the wrong time, I'm being impatient with one of my children, or I, I am not obeying what I know to do, giving in to my pride, not being loving. They're all the same. See, I knew that Christianity wasn't true. I knew it wasn't real. I knew there was nothing more to it. Each and every one of you have been put in a context where people are watching you. They're watching how you behave. Your children are watching you. Your in-laws are watching you. Your lost family are watching you. And they've heard you talk about Jesus. They've heard what you said about Christ. And they're watching to see, does it really matter to them? And I'm not talking about a life of hypocrisy. But what I'm saying is what you do affects the body of Christ. What I do affects you and what you do affects me. We're in this together. And David was struck by this. He was mindful of this and it was so meaningful to him that he cried out to the Lord, please don't let those who trust in you be put to dishonor through me because of me. I don't want to be the cause of your name being blasphemed. I don't want to be the cause of your people being put to shame because of my selfishness and my lack of love and my pride and my lust and my anger and my lack of care about your glory and the souls of people. Brothers, you know a way that this can really hit home? As the temperature rises, clothing seems to shrink. And all it takes is one wrong look, brothers. Don't you go to Grace Church, Austin? Weren't you downtown preaching the God? And you're going to look at me like that? I knew all Christian men are the same. You see? What we do matters for more than just us, but for the church of Christ himself. Albert Barnes said these sobering words about this issue. He said, For purposes of commerce and science and war and traffic, people from nations that are nominally Christian have gone into almost every part of the pagan world, but they have not often been real Christians. They have been intent on gain and have, to a sad extent, been profane and unprincipled and profligate people. Yet the pagan have regarded them as Christians, as fair specimens of the effect of the religion of Christ. They have learned, therefore, to abuse the name of Christian and the author of the Christian religion as encouraging and promoting profligacy of life. What is he saying? Throughout history, there have been many people who have gone to pagans, heathens, gone to the lost for 
money or war or colonialism or some other thing and they bore the name of Christ. And those pagans who had never met another Christian said, this must be what Christianity is. And they therefore assigned Christians are this and the author of Christianity is just as false. So what does Barnes say? Hence, therefore, one reason among thousands of the importance of Christian missions to the pagan, it is well to disabuse the pagan world of their erroneous opinions of the tendency of Christianity. It is well to teach them that we do not regard these people as Christians as we have sent to them the worst part of our population. It is well to send them holy men who shall exhibit to them the true nature of Christianity. You, Christian, have the opportunity to exhibit the true nature of Christianity to those who have only seen a lie who have only seen plastic bananas, who have only seen hypocrisy and falsehood, you have the opportunity to be the one genuine light that they've ever seen. Barnes said that was a reason enough to send missionaries. And raise our character, our character, not mine individually, but the character of the church in their eyes as a Christian people, and where there no other result of Christian missions, it would be worth all the expense and toil attending them to raise the national character in the view of the pagan world. It's heavy. As we go out today, do you realize that the people you speak to may have never met a genuine Christian before. You may be the only Christian they have ever met and will ever meet. And by what you say and do and respond, you could raise the view of true Christians before this pagan or you could lower it. And then when another genuine Christian comes along their path, they say, I already know what y'all are. This is what Kinsey and I faced when we went to Haiti. People were stopping us before we even opened our mouth. We already know what Christians are like. And we had to say, I don't know who you met before, but I want to tell you about the true Christ and what he does in the life of sinners. Lord, may I not be the cause of your people being dishonored. Hypocrisy can cause the name of our God to be blasphemed. And my sins, before the world seeing it, can cause the church of Christ, who Jesus said, Why are you persecuting me? So you see how that's connected to his name. Blasphemy. If they reject Christ, may it not be because we have been unkind, unloving, and ungodly. May it be because they hate Christ and not us. 
Another way that the Bible talks about, in fact, this is the verse from Romans 2.24. It says, as it is written. You say, well, where is it written? Well, Isaiah 52 and verse 5. Another way that the Lord may be blasphemed by what we do is how we handle suffering. Isaiah 52, 5. And now, what do I have here? May I just say this, as some of y'all are still turning. Don't despise the sinners that live in your home with you as being the people who need to see a genuine life of Christianity. Don't overlook them, even if they're small. And now what do I have here? Isaiah 52, 5 declares the Lord, for my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. This is the verse that Paul was referring to in Romans 2.24. And you can see how I'm taking liberty here with that verse because this doesn't have to do with hypocrisy. The concept of the name of God being blasphemed among the Gentiles applies to many things, even in the quotation that Paul was making, the reference. In this text, we find the children of Israel in bondage. They're in bondage taken away, they're in misery and sorrow and suffering. This was not persecution because of their love for the Lord. They were in this situation because of their sin. The text says they were taken away for nothing. In other words, this was not a virtuous or godly reason that they were in this situation. They were there because of their sin. And they suffered without joy. They were not in the midst of this uh, trial, worshiping the Lord, content in Him, loving Him. No, the children of Israel were very fickle in their back and forth. And when they were in bondage, they might cry out, Lord, please have mercy on us, but then they'd go right back to it. They were not suffering well. And the name of God continually, all the day, was despised, the ESV says. How do you suffer? How do you deal with disappointments, tragedies, loss? Do you suffer in such a way that shows that Christ is enough? Do you suffer in such a way that shows that He is the treasure of your soul? that He's more precious to you than your comfort or your happiness? Or do you despair the way the world does? Do you mourn the way the world does? Do you grieve the way the world does without hope? How we suffer speaks volumes to the world. And isn't it true that when a tragedy happens to a Christian, the world is watching to see, how are y'all going to respond to this? Especially when you're involved, not just a tragedy out there, but a tragedy that hits home, a tragedy that's in your mailbox, that knocks on your door, 
that affects your family and your health. Because it's easy to follow Christ when all is well, and it's easy to talk about Him when the birds are singing and the doctors only have good news for you, but when tragedy strikes, how would you react when everything falls apart? I'm going to ask you a question that made me buckle under the shame of the answer. How valuable is Jesus to you on the worst day of your life? Yesterday when I was studying, uh, I went out into the living room. My family was watching a VHS tape, and it was about the shooting at Columbine High School in 1999. It was about the first person who was murdered, a young girl, 17 years old, named Rachel Scott. Maybe you've heard her story. She was a Christian. She had a diary, and in this diary she wrote this, I have no more personal friends at school, but you know what? I'm not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus. I'm not going to justify my faith to them, and I am not going to hide the light that God has put into me. If I have to sacrifice everything, I will. I will take it. If my friends have to become my enemies for me to be with my best friend Jesus, then that's fine with me. Well, three weeks before the massacre, this young girl began to preach the gospel to two students. Two students who would go on to murder 13 people at the school. Of course, she didn't know that that's what they were going to do, but she saw them, saw that they were bullied and dark in their disposition and just evil guys, and she said what they need is Christ. So she began to talk to them about Jesus, tell them about their sin, tell them about the hope that's found in the Lord Jesus alone, tell them about the cross and forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. And they hated her for it. And in the tapes that were discovered, they were talking about how much they hated her specifically for her Christian witness. And they said, we want to shoot her in the head. On the day of the shooting, she was walking with her friends and she was the first person to be shot. She was shot Three times, twice in the leg, once in the back, the boy walked over to her, put the gun to her temple, grabbed her by the hair and said, do you still believe in your God? And with blood flowing out of her, bullets inside of her, death before her, fear, certainly, she said, you know I do. And they blew her brains out. What did they want? They wanted the suffering that she was going through to allow them to mock Christ. Your Jesus is important while the sun's shining, but now you've got a gun to your head. Watch what you do. But the Spirit of God gave strength to that young girl and gave no occasion for the name of the Lord to be blasphemed. They couldn't mock Christ or Christians by the way she suffered that day. How do you suffer? How do you deal with tragedies? Do you show that Christ really is 
everything. And it doesn't have to be something as dramatic as a gun to your head, right? Just how do you deal with the disappointments that come to you? How do you deal with bad days? Tragedy, bad news. Do you give up hope? But doesn't Colossians say something that Christ in you is the hope of glory and that your hope is in heaven where Christ is seated? So how could we give up hope? Do you despair of life, but for you to live is Christ and to die is gain, so how could you despair of life? Do you see nothing to rejoice about because this news has come or this news has come, but you're forgiven of all of your sins, you've been adopted by God, chosen by God, loved by God, the Spirit of God dwells within you, Christ loves you, He calls you His, He's your brother, He's not ashamed to be called your brother, the Lord in heaven is your Father, you have wrath removed. You will be with him forever. Every bad thing that happens to you is actually working for your good to make you more like Christ. You can ask the Lord for anything and everything that's according to his will be given to you. I mean, you are a child of God. How could you have no joy? But you know that we do sometimes. We struggle with this, don't we? And what I'm saying to you is that when we don't suffer well, the world watches and they make conclusions. What do you have different than I have? I go through bad days. I don't want to live anymore. You go through bad days. You don't want to live anymore. What do you have different than me? I get bad news. I get angry and respond in that way. You get bad news, you respond angry in that way. What's different about you? What's different about your life? What's different about, why should I flee my life of pleasure and, and all of that to run to Jesus? What difference does it really make? Because when it boils down to it and the rubber meets the road and you're really in the, the, the vice grip of suffering, what do you do? Brethren, I, I want to encourage you as I encourage myself that if you grumble and complain and murmur, we shouldn't expect the world to see Jesus as precious by that. The early church had the same issues and they suffered much. How did they get through the suffering that they went through? Patient, loving, faithful suffering. One historian recorded the sufferings of the early church in this way. The Roman Empire fought to silence the Christians. One slave was scourged till the flesh parted from his bones. And then the wounds were rubbed with salt and vinegar. Think about that. Why did they put this Christian through that? Because your Jesus is not real, and I'm going to prove it. Others were racked till their bones were out of joint. Others hung up their, by their hands to hooks with weights fastened to their feet. 
A city in Persia was surrounded by soldiers and every person in it slaughtered and the Christians were hunted down like wild beasts from one end of the empire to the other. Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, on his way to be martyred, wrote letters to the early churches and this is what he said. Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let breakings, tearings, and separations of bones, let cutting off of members, let bruising to pieces of the whole body, and let the very torment of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Is that your heart too? As you suffer, the tears flow, but the joy remains because you know He's with you. The cries of anguish and agony escape your lungs, but you are not moved because God loves you. He is your Father. He reigns. This is working together for your good. There is an eternity to be gained, crowns to be received, and Christ walks with you. No matter what, it's not that you have strength to withstand such terror. Which of us could look in the face of a lion and say, no fear? No, I don't have that strength. But Christ will give me the grace that I need and he'll give it to you too in that day, if you will, but surrender all to him. Because you want the preciousness of Christ to be seen because he's worthy. Right? Is he still worthy to you? He's worthy, right? To suffer all for his namesake. He's worthy to go through it, sing. He's my treasure. Take everything from me. As long as he remains, I've lost nothing. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. Well, the last thing, the consequences of sin. Hypocrisy, sin itself, suffering terribly with grumbling and complaining, and the consequences of sin in our life and cause our God to be blasphemed. Ezekiel 36.20 says this, And wherever they went wrong among the nations, they profaned My holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave His land. They profaned my holy name because they said, here's the Lord's people, but they had to leave the land. Why did they have to leave the land? Gentiles didn't know or or care. They're not interested. Uh, Why? All they see is a child of God being punished, being put through great trials, and they therefore mock the Lord, the consequences of our sin. Now, It's important for me to say this, that 
Just because you do what God wants you to do does not mean you will go through a pain-free life. TBN teaches that. It's false. Health, wealth, prosperity, teachers will tell you, obey God and blessings will come and doors will open and houses and cars and parking spots and all the, that foolishness. Joseph didn't do anything wrong to suffer as he did in Egypt. Job did nothing wrong to suffer as he did at the hands of the devil. Peter and Paul did nothing wrong. The disciples did nothing wrong to be martyred and persecuted. Following Christ brings suffering and trial. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Jesus said, I have overcome this world. That is true. But there is also the truth that God chastises his children. When we get off track, he comes for us as a loving father with the rod. Hebrews 12 tells us that. It is for discipline, verse 7, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Fathers, you hear that? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The very evidence that you are a Christian is that you get disciplined when you get off track. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's a good thing that we get disciplined. It's the evidence of our salvation. When we get off track, he comes for us. But the bad side is when we get off track and he comes for us with a consequence for our sin, the world may see this and blaspheme our God that we're going through this just as happened in the days of the children of Israel. They're the people of God, but they had to come out of the land. And therefore, the name of God was blasphemed. This is exactly what the Lord said to David through the prophet Nathan, remember? 2 Samuel 12, 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also, this is New King James, uh, has put away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. You're going through this trial because you sinned. And because you're going through this trial, because of your sin, the enemies of the Lord now have a great occasion to blaspheme my name. Great occasion. Did you lose a job because you were lazy, irresponsible? unfaithful, deceitful, and now the people who know you know you're looking for a job and they know why and they say, Psh, I thought Christians were supposed to be responsible people. Where's your God now? Do you see? The consequences of our sin can bring about blasphemy. Well, where's hope? Where's good news? Well, you find yourself guilty of these things. What do you do? Is there any way to, to break, or rather to mend, this broken vessel? 
there is light. There is hope. And I will take you, lastly, the last place we'll go is Second uh, Chronicles 33. I want to tell you about a king. A king named Manasseh. And this king was a cause of great blasphemy. More than probably you and I put together. Second Chronicles 33, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. This is Hezekiah's son. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. Kind of getting the picture about this guy. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, to which God said to David and to Solomon, his sons, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed to your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. You get the picture about him. Great sinner, great cause for much blasphemy, led many people astray. Other places say more than all the other kings before him. Then the Lord speaks. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. He didn't care. He wasn't moved. So what does the Lord do? Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So God sent trials. He sent suffering. He sent pain. Consequences. Slavery. Shame. Bondage. And here's where there is instruction for you. Have you sinned like Manasseh? Or you may say, I haven't burned my children and I haven't put idols in the house of the Lord, but you've been a cause of blasphemy. You can relate to him there. Maybe you've led your friends astray, your children by your bad example. You've brought shame upon the name of Christ. What do you do? <clears throat> Verse 12. This is Manasseh. The same Manasseh who did all that. And when he was in distress, 
he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. If you feel the distress because you have been the cause of blasphemy, look at what it led Manasseh to do. Not despair and hopelessness, but it moved him to humble repentance and prayer. He sought the Lord's face. He believed God would still be merciful though he had sinned so greatly. And what does the Lord do? What does the Holy One do to this one who sinned more than all the other kings, who burned his children, who tore down the places of exaltation to the Lord and built idols in high places and worshipped all the host of heaven and even brought it into the temple itself, who was responsible for many going astray? What does the Lord do when this man responds one time and repentance. Verse 13, he prayed to him and God was moved. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Do you think you've sinned too much? Think you've caused too much blasphemy and it's over for you? Look at Manessa. Remember the words of the song we sing sometimes? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous! Oh, how wonderful! And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Are you still amazed by the grace of God that though you could be as bad as Manessa, if you repent, the Lord will mercifully forgive you. And Manessa's repentance was not just inwardly. It poured out. 14 through 16 lays out how repentant he was. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, carried around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods that he put there, and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace, offerings of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. There is mercy for you at the cross of Christ. This is why He died. This is why He came. This is why His blood was poured out for causers of blasphemy like you and I. There is forgiveness in Him. Confess your sins. Repent. Go to those people that you've caused blasphemy by your behavior and repent to them. Tell them, I was wrong. This is not the behavior of a Christian, but there's mercy found in Christ and I need that mercy more than anyone. That's consistent 
Are you the reason for God being blasphemed? Run to the cross. Run to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy in your time of help. And the final thing I'll say is to those blasphemers among us. You're the people here who have been led to blaspheme. You've been caused to despise the Lord because of the behavior of a Christian or a so-called Christian. And you've despised the Lord and despised the Word and despised Christ because all you've ever known and seen is hypocrites. May I say this to you? One, they were wrong for what they did. But two, that is not an excuse. On the day of judgment, you will not be able to stand before God and say, but they were hypocrites, but they caused me to blaspheme. That's not going to fly. You will suffer the wrath of God for your blasphemy, for your disobedience, for your lack of faith, just as those unrepentant causers of blasphemy will. Christ stands waiting to forgive you and mercifully pardon you today. Come to Him. And He will wash you, cleanse you, forgive you, heal you. Father, we can feel like David. Father, we don't want to be the cause of Your name being blasphemed. We don't want to be the cause of Your people, Your faithful people, people who have been striving and straining to be obedient to You. We don't want them to be despised and come to shame because of things we've done or left undone. Lord, You know us. You know how suffering causes us to feel so weak and so tempted to groan and grumble and complain. Lord, You know. You know us. We don't want to be the cause of blasphemy. And in ourselves, there's no hope and no strength. But we don't look to ourselves for hope. We look to You. We look to Christ. We look to Your Spirit. We look for You to help us and keep us and sustain us. And we have it on Your Word that You will complete the work You've begun. But Lord, we don't want to make it as but by fire We want to enter your presence hearing, well done, good and faithful slave. Help us, Lord, as a church, as individuals, for the sake of your great name. Amen.